So I'll just welcome those of you watching online right now from coast to coast and across the Fruited Plains. My name's Joe. I'm the pastor at Lynchburg City Church. And if God puts it on your heart to give to the church, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. With that, let's just take a second and pray together. Jesus, we love you. We love you. We love you, Jesus, because you first loved us. And for many of us, Lord, our, our hearts are, are, are heavy. Um, seeing the atrocities that have taken place over the, the last week in the Middle East. And so we join with the psalmist in Psalms 122, as he says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. And we do pray, Lord, for peace. We pray for your perfect peace right now. We pray for the, the people, Lord, the civilians, the people taken hostage, Lord, even like right now, operations are, are, are going on that we, we don't even know about. And Lord, we, we remember, I think, in our courage that you are a just God and vengeance belongs to you. And I, I pray that that would, that would help ease us in these moments. This, the situation there, it didn't take you off, off guard. You're, you're not caught off guard. You're not, you're not surprised by what's happened, Lord. And so I pray that uh, we would rest secure knowing that you are in charge, that you are in control, that you see every uh, crime and atrocity and, and evil act and that no one is going to get away with anything. And yet, Lord, I also appeal to your mercy. As much as I, I just like to come up here and pray, Lord, just kill all of them, kill like all the Hamas terrorists, Lord. I also pray that you would do a, a miracle and save some of them and some of them would bow the knee to you Lord, we think of President Biden right now. He's got a lot of tough decisions and, and, and he's got a lot on his plate. Um, I, I pray that you would help him, that you would guide him, that you would instruct him. I pray for a special mercy and grace upon him. I pray that you would protect his health and his body and his mental faculties. Just hold them together, Lord. I pray for his salvation, that he would come to know you too. Lord, we, um, we think of our soldiers Sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen, space force, those at home and abroad. We pray for their safety. We, we pray for their protection. We also pray for their salvation. We think of the persecuted church, as we do every week. Leah Sherabu being held by Boko Haram in Ni Nigeria because she's a Christian. Or Pastor Yusuf imprisoned in Iran. Or Pastor Wang and Pastor John imprisoned in China for the Christian Lord in North Korea. In Afghanistan in the South Sudan, in Eritrea, in Somalia, in some of the, the hardest places to be a Christian. And we join with the apostle who wrote the book of Hebrews in saying that, Lord, may we never forget them. May we remember those who are in chains as if in chains with them. And today, Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to hear from you, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would strengthen our faith, Lord, especially for the people today, Lord, and just maybe the last week or month or, or, or a couple months, like our, our faith has just been really just wavering. I pray that after today, Lord, it would be encouraged and, and, and strengthened. 
I pray that you'd protect me from error, that you'd help me to say only what you want me to say. And if there's something you don't want me to say, then don't let me say it. And if there's something I need to say that I haven't even prepared to say today, I pray for a fresh filling of your spirit. I pray that you give me the right words and that, Lord, today, whatever's going on in our life, that right now you would just give us the attention span to focus and hear from you. We pray this in your great name, Jesus. Amen. So uh, we are in John's Gospel. This is part 22. If you're joining us for the first time, we love expository preaching. That's where you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the text. Um, love it. And uh, I always encourage people to look for uh, getting involved in churches that definitely preach expository. A couple of reasons we do it this way. Um, number one is it helps prevent taking verses out of context. And, and number two, more than that, it also helps us uh, to be able to maintain the author's intended meaning throughout the story. And so uh, this has been a series we've been doing. This is the 22nd week, uh, 22nd sermon, and I'm dropping us into uh, John chapter 7. We're going to be in verse 40, and it, once again, if you are joining us for the first time, I want to set this up for us right now, because what's taking place is essentially this big state fair in John chapter 7. It is the Feast of Booths, otherwise known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Josephus, the Jewish historian, reminds us that this is one of the three major festivals that took place. So a lot of people are like, hey, like we got the week off. Let's go to Jerusalem. Everyone's going to be there. Grandma, aunts, uncles. And so everyone's going there to Jerusalem. And during the, the Feast of Booths, um, what they would do is they'd make these temporary structures, these booths, fig trees, tree branches, and it would be to commemorate their ancestors' wilderness wanderings in which they lived in temporary structures. And so they're there, and uh, as I think Katie Swafford reminded us uh, two weeks ago at Small Group, this is actually happening right now, or it just happened on the, on the calendar. And one of the big things that they would do as a part of the Feast of Booths is they do this water ceremony. It was almost kind of like a, a daily parade. They'd go to the Pool of Siloam, they'd fill up a golden pitcher, and then they'd have this kind of water parade through the city. They'd go through the water gate, they'd blow the shofar, they'd blow the ram's horn, and then they'd take it into the temple precincts, temple mount, around the temple, around the altar, and uh, they did this every single day. Every single day. And the last day they'd do it seven times, and it would be concluded with these petitions to God for water, because, well, it's October, usually, end of September or early October, and the wells from the hot summer heat, they've dried up a lot. There's not a lot of water left over. And so they're praying to God, God, please take care of us. Please provide for us. We, we need water. Our wells are getting low. Um, the reserves are low. So, so please be there and help us. And of course, on the last day of the Feast of Booze, Jesus stands up and he says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come. And that's where we pick up today. Chapter 7, verse 40. And when they heard these words, when they heard Jesus on the last day, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. And I'll pause right there. So here's what I think is very interesting about these opening verses. You've got two groups. Two groups of individuals who believe true things about Jesus. And yet they're in disagreement over his identity. And I think the reason it's a little strange for us today, as we see these two groups, some who are saying he's the prophet, other who's saying he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the king, is we'd all say as Christians today, as Protestants, we'd be like, yes to both of those. But these two groups aren't saying yes to both of them. 
They've kind of like, they've kind of got these two different sides, these two different divisions. And that's strange because if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard how Jesus is both prophet, priest, and king. How many of you guys have heard that he's prophet, priest, and king? Yeah, a couple. Yeah, he's prophet, priest, and king. Or another way to say it, he's prophet, priest, and king, prophet, priest, and king, prophet, priest, and king. You're not going to forget that, right? What is he? Prophet, priest, and king, right? So, so, so we think, we're like, well, of course he's that. He's prophet, priest, and king. But this concept for the first century Jews was incredibly foreign. So much so that they don't think this way. They thought of the promised Messiah, the promised Christ, the promised king, and then the, the promised prophet as these two separate individuals. But in Jesus, he fulfills both. In Jesus, he fulfills all three, prophet, priest, and king. That is, he is our great high priest, Hebrews 7 tells us, after the order of Melchizedek. And of course, he is the promised king, the son of David, whose kingdom will endure forever. That's 2 Samuel 7, 16. And then Matthew 1, 1 and Revelation 22, 16, they come and they confirm that. And then as we see here, he's also the, the prophet, a title he acknowledged about himself back in John 4, 44. If you, didn't, if you don't remember that, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. In addition, Moses spoke of Jesus being this prophet. See, back in Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses said this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And in the book of Acts, in Acts 3 and Acts 7, both Peter and Stephen spoke of Jesus as being the fulfillment of Moses' prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, 15. But, of course, the problem is they don't listen. They don't listen. In fact, that's what Stephen said in Acts chapter 7, right before he was killed for telling the truth. He said, you murdered the prophet. You murdered Messiah. You murdered Jesus, just like your ancestors murdered all the other prophets that God sent. Like anytime they came and they said something you didn't like or you didn't just, you disagreed with, you thought was too hard, you guys just killed them. And, and so Jesus is the prophet proclaiming God's word at the end of the festival. When everyone's praying for water, he comes and he says, I'm here. I've got water. Come to me and drink if you're thirsty. And so these two groups are divided about his identity, whether he is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised king, uh, ruler of Israel, and then the others say, well, no, he's just, he's just the prophet. And if you notice the end of verse 41, it says, is the Christ to come from Galilee? So, so I cut us off at the middle of verse 41. That was kind of on purpose because it ties into verse 42. So then in verse 41, they're like, hold on a second, you guys are saying this, you guys are saying this, but is the Christ to come from Galilee? Verse 42, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Twice in the same chapter, we saw this last week in the preceding verses, people are very dismissive of Jesus. They're dismissive of him, they're dismissive of his origin because of where he's not from. Or in this case, of where they think he should be from. So he's not from Bethlehem. He's not from the city of David. But this is just an assumption that they're making. A hasty one at that. See, they assume that since he grew up in Nazareth, that he was also born there. But they don't ask. They don't inquire. They don't investigate. In fact, they have no interest in doing so. They have no interest in knowing the truth about him. Just like today, there are many people who don't care about knowing what's true. I remember finding myself on a spring break one time, witnessing to a young guy, 
And I got to the point in the conversation where I said, if what you believe isn't true, would you want to know? And he said, no, I wouldn't want to know. I said, you, you wouldn't want to know? He said, I wouldn't want to know. You're telling me if what you believe is not true, you would not want to know. He said, yeah, that's right. I said, why? He said, because I, I like what I believe. And the thought of having to change my beliefs, that would be inconvenient and, and hard. And I don't really do inconvenient or hard. I, I do easy. And, and I think so it is for many people today. They are lazy or apathetic, and, and they want easy. They want unchallenging. They want painless. And unfortunately, this even extends to many who would identify as Christians, some of whom are in our local churches today. They, they, want, they want easy. They want the they want the surface-level, non-challenging sermons that make them feel good about themselves, right? The cotton candy, butterflies, Disneyland version of Christianity. That's what they want. They don't want anything that stretches them. They don't want anything that pushes them. They don't want anything that could potentially be upsetting to them. They want enough Jesus to get the benefits, but not too much Bible because that gets a little boring or it requires too much thinking. The people in the story, they have no interest in knowing the truth. They have no interest in asking or inquiring or investigating to find out the truth about Jesus. For them, assuming is just so much easier. And I think what's odd to me is that John the evangelist who's writing this gospel, he could have corrected them. And this probably isn't like, verse 42 is probably not one of those verses that within like seminary, academia, that is like a debated verse. But it was one that I came away this week being like, why not just tell them? Like, that, it was just odd to me. Like, why not just correct them, John? You could have set the record straight. You, you could have been like, you, you guys are mistaken. He actually is from Bethlehem. Like, uh, like driver's license, like passport, social security. Like, like you, you guys, like, are mistaken. He was actually born there. He actually is David's descendants, but he doesn't. And that had me scratching my head a little bit this week because I'm like, why not, why not tell them? And I think the reason is as one commentator pointed out, and I quote, in this instance, he simply left the ideas out there to indicate the irony of their false perceptions of his origin. Not to mention, for John, the story of Jesus does not begin at Bethlehem, like in Matthew and Luke's gospel. You see, the story of Jesus and his origin begins with God, as John would say in his opening salvo in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And that for John the evangelist who's writing this story, that is the ultimate origin of Jesus. Of Jesus. That is Jesus' origin with God in the beginning. That, that, that's the ultimate reality that he wants his audience to know, to see, to believe, to grasp onto. It, it transcends Bethlehem. It's so much more than that. He's always been, he's always existed because he is God, he's God's son. And then we come to verse 43. It says, so there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Some like him, some don't like him. And the reason I point this out is because it's so true today. 
Jesus is an incredibly polarizing uh, individual. He's incredibly controversial. And I say that because if you're here today or you're watching right now and maybe you're contemplating becoming a Christian, then you might need to think twice about doing so. Because if you embrace Jesus, it's going to cause divisions, just like for these people. If you side with Jesus, it's going to cause divisions in your relationships, possibly with family, with significant others. If you're going to follow Jesus, division is coming. Division is guaranteed. But as I think as Christians, we ought to look differently at this. Not as something to be like scared of or not as something to run from, but something to embrace, something to remind us that we must be on the right side of the divide. If there is a divide, we must be on the right side of it because there is a right side and there is a wrong side. And the pressure we face is to cross the divide because we don't want to alienate somebody. We don't want to alienate a, a friend or a family member. We don't want to lose that relationship. And we've seen this a ton in, in the news the, the last few weeks with Andy Stanley, who was, in my opinion, pretty clearly on the wrong side of the divide. And if you haven't followed what's been happening with him, he, he's either had a, a stroke or lost his mind and compromised on clear biblical issues regarding gender and sexuality. Yes. Al Mohler had a, a great podcast on it, the briefing. And so here, here's what I'd say today about this. If you ever find yourself facing a choice between losing a friend and losing Jesus, between losing a family member and losing Jesus, pick Jesus. Choose Jesus. Side with Jesus. And here's the reason. Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 10, 29 and 30, truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. You see, if you follow Jesus, be prepared for the divide that will inevitably occur between you and those hostile to him, which will no doubt be individuals that consist of friends and family. And I say this because I don't want you caught off guard. I don't want you surprised by this reality. I want you prepared. I want you stacking sandbags and, and laying out Constantina wire. I want you setting the claymore charges and, and building an impregnable fortress of your faith so that when that happens and the ground shakes and it rattles around you, you don't flinch at all. When your parents tell you you're dead to me because you're siding with this Jesus guy and not with them, you don't blink. When your siblings tell you that unless you celebrate their lifestyle or the things they celebrate, you're not really family anymore, that you hold firm. Because you already made that decision. You've chosen Jesus. You're with Jesus. That's the side of the divide we must be on. So, in verse 45, it says this. The officers then came to the chief priest and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one's ever spoken like this man. Remember back in verse 32 last week? There was an arrest warrant that had been 
issued, an arrest warrant that had been authorized, and the temple police go, and uh, they knock on the door to serve Jesus the warrant, and he says, yeah, I'm not going with you guys. What, what do you mean we're not going? Yeah, not going with you. No, you can't search the premises. I'm going to go uh, where I go, when I go. And they're like, can he say that? I don't know. I don't know if he can say that. that what do we do? I don't know what to do. Maybe, do we do anything? I don't know. And, and keep in mind these, these officers uh, they are a police force, but they also would have been drawn from the Levites. In, in other words, they, they had some religious training. And in this situation, in this situation, they are clearly torn about what the right thing to do is. And so they don't arrest him. And upon returning to the chief priest and the Pharisees who grill them, who want an explanation of what happened, like of all the reasons they could have given to them, they could have been like, Listen, it was a very volatile situation in the crowds, or they could have talked about how a public arrest might have caused a riot, or the lack of social distancing and the importance of trusting the science. But they don't. They don't make up any story at all. They just tell the truth. Like, you can almost hear the shock in their voice when we read the explanation. They say, no one ever spoke like this man. We've never heard anybody talk like this guy before. You say, what, what way would that be? What do they mean? They, they've never heard anyone talk like him. Well, what, what did Jesus just finish saying on the last day of the Feast of the Water Ceremony? If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me. See, people don't talk like that. The, the normal way you talk is you're like, hey, I've got some cooler in the water, uh, water in the cooler, excuse me, right? I've got, I've got a bottles in the fridge. We've got the well outside. We'll pull up a picture, right? That's how we would talk. But Jesus speaks in a way that only the Son of God could. And so, if you're thirsty, come to me. And of course, given that these temple police officers have religious training because they're drawn from the Levites, they very well may see the connection between what Jesus is saying and what the prophet Isaiah said centuries earlier in chapter 44.3. The prophet said this, I will pour water on the thirsty land, and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings upon your descendants. Listen, they could have made up any excuse they wanted to. And they come and they say, no one's ever talked like this guy before. <laughs> Can't imagine that. Well, their bosses aren't too happy. And it says in verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Uh, yeah, they're, they're, not, they're not happy. You, you can just see the, the emotion starting to pour out um, in, in their questioning of the temple police. And of course, it's rooted in this belief that the temple police have been compromised. They've gone over to the dark side. They've been seduced by this false teacher, this imposter, this con man, which is something, of course, that they, as the subject matter experts, <coughs> would never allow to happen to them. They're effectively saying, like, we are too wise to be duped. We are too intelligent to be deceived. We are too smart to even consider the possibility that this imposter is who he claims to be. Which is kind of ironic because we find that God regularly makes practice of this sort of thing. Like, the Apostle Paul would tell the Corinthian church, he'd say it this way, for consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. 
Not many of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What a verbal reprimand for the type of religious leaders here at the end of chapter 7. Oh, but these guys aren't done yet. They continue in verse 49. It says, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Verse 49 is just more of this exasperation being expressed by the religious leaders in this very condescending way that is honestly characteristic of how they viewed the common man. And this would be true even if the common man had studied the scriptures, even if he had studied the Mishnah, which is their commentary on the scriptures. Like, it wouldn't matter, right? Unless he was taught by one of their religious leaders, well, then their education was essentially unaccredited. It was was worthless. And those people, those unschooled people, they were indistinguishable from animals. That's a direct quote from some of the rabbinical writings. That's that's how many of the religious establishment thought. In other words, you can only know what's legit if you went to the right seminary. If you went to, like, my seminary. If you got ordained. That's the only way you can really know the truth, right? Unless you're part of the club. And if not, you're worthless. You're trash. You're accursed. And I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I don't exactly get all excited to go to that rabbi synagogue. Right? I don't want to go to that pastor's church. But this idea that we see here is that from their point of view, we have these weak-minded people that are just too dumb and too stupid to figure out what the truth is. These dumb sheep just need us terribly. It's dripping with such condescension and pride. It's like the guy who says, listen, if you didn't get saved with the King James Version of the Bible, you're not really saved unless you got saved with my version, right? Well, verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, remember Nicodemus shows up in John chapter 3, goes to see Jesus at night. Every single pastor, his sermon is entitled Nick at Night. He thinks he's super clever. There it is, right? That guy. So uh, Nicodemus is here with him, right? And he says, uh, I guess I'm going to say, guys, verse 51, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does. And they replied, Are you from Galilee too, Nicodemus? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Nicodemus, when he speaks up here in verse 50, it's not in order to defend Jesus directly, but rather to kind of raise this procedural point, if observed, would work to his favor. But his colleagues... They're just too worked up. They're too hostile to listen to mere reason. And rather than be open to Nicodemus' concern, to know the facts before they condemn, they say, in essence, Nicodemus, the only reason that you would even make this suggestion is because you love this guy. Right? Like, I bet you got, you've got, like, the what would Jesus do bracelet on, Nicodemus. You, you probably, like, like, have an Airbnb that you stay at, like, when you go to Galilee. Like, all you Galileans are the same. And 
In this moment, I'm reminded of what James 1.19 says, how it warns us against this sort of rash behavior. Or have you not heard that it was said, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This is like in those moments when we get so worked up that we won't even listen to what someone's trying to explain to us. We allow ourselves to get so upset that we refuse to listen to any reason whatsoever. The guys here, they're not thinking clearly. They haven't been thinking clearly the whole time. A case in point, they could have investigated Jesus' birthplace. They could have actually listened to what the temple police were trying to tell them. Like, did they even consider at any time that the temple police, who had been authorized to arrest Jesus, must have had a pretty good reason not to execute the arrest warrant? But they don't. They don't. Like, they need to have someone come and just dump a bucket of ice water over them to shock them back into reality. Because if they actually took a breath and paused, they would also remember that what they're saying to Nicodemus is not true. They, they just said, search and see that no prophet has ever arisen from Galilee when the truth is both Jonah and Nahum were prophets from Galilee. So it's totally false to make the claims that no prophet has ever come from Galilee. It's just flat out wrong. And the irony is, they just went on this soapbox in which in the most condescending way, shoot out the temple police force for their ignorance and the crowd for how stupid they were to consider that Jesus might be legit. And so now these religious leaders go from ignoring the truth to inventing their own version. Sort of like people who have been so adamant Hamas didn't attack Israel last week. They didn't kidnap children. They didn't rape women. They didn't cut the heads off of babies. They didn't execute people in the streets. That didn't happen. Just like the many millions of people today who plug their ears and refuse to consider that Jesus was in fact the Son of God. You see, for millions of people, they kind of only want to go halfway with Jesus. Like, if you're a Muslim, maybe you'll acknowledge that he was a prophet. If you're the average American, maybe you're okay with baby Jesus at Christmas so long as he doesn't get out of the major and start preaching. Like, non-Christians, they'll even take their kids and drop them off at Sunday school, right? Uh, So that their kids can absorb moral teachings, but they stop short of embracing who he really is. And so, yes, of course, we should absolutely pray for the peace of Jerusalem and and Israel, as the psalmist says. But the truth is, whether it's Israel or whether it's Hamas, both sides need the living water that only Jesus can offer. Both sides need the real and lasting peace that is only available through the Prince of Peace. And unfortunately, most people are like the young man I was witnessing to on spring break. When I asked, if what you believe isn't true, would you want to know? And he said, no. No. And I think C.S. Lewis absolutely nails it about this type of person when he says, and I quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That is, 
I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, Lewis writes. A man who said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something far worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord God, but let none of us come with our patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That is not an option. In other words, just like when the police show up without Jesus, without executing the arrest warrant, and the only explanation they give is, like, no, no, one, no one talks the way this guy talked. I'm, I've never heard anybody talk this way before. It makes it irrational to say nice things about Jesus while rejecting his deity. He was not nice if he wasn't God. And oh, that every one of us would find ourselves on the right side of the divide and that we would be prepared when division inevitably comes to our doors and that we would not flinch, that we would not blink, but that we would be resolute in our position and in the fortress of our faith. And so as the team comes today, I want to pray. Lord, we love you because of who you are and what you've done. And Lord, while we, of course, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we pray for the salvation of so many Palestinians that don't know you, including the Hamas terrorists, and we pray for the salvation of so many Jewish people who don't know you, who don't love you, who don't serve you, who don't believe that you were who you said you were who looks as scoffingly at you or the thought of you as the religious leaders in John 7 do. And my prayer today, God, is a, a prayer of preparation for each and every one of us, that our faith would be strengthened and solidified, that we would be right now on the right side of the divide, and that we would be prepared when Attacks come when temptation comes, when pressures come to pull us away from you, to pull us across the divide, to, to cause us to, to compromise. I don't want us to compromise. May our faith be strengthened and may it be solidified and may it be resolute this day with your great help. <laughs> of which if you don't give, we won't make it. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.